podcast, then you will notice, no doubt, that most of the episodes recently have been bordering on the two-hour mark. And and recently, it, uh, where am I? And I almost had an episode that was like close to three hours. So how about that? That's a lot. That's a lot of material. That's a lot of stoned and drunk rambling that pads the time that makes the stories happen later in the episode and make the stories drag on a little bit. Not a bad way, because obviously you are here to listen to me talk uh, at this point by myself, and you apparently get enjoyment out of doing that. So good for you. Pat yourself on the back. Uh, touch yourself. Whatever you gotta do. I appreciate that you are here, that you have joined me on this episode of Lots of Pasta. It is me, your host, Captain Death, here for a solo episode. I would like to think that this is going to be something I do every, like, 20 to 25 episodes, like, every season, as I like to call it, um, just to kind of uh, break the, the monotony of how things... Uh, get sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to get people to come over to my house and smoke weed and read scary stories with me. You don't you don't know. Quarantine is a is a is a tough thing to manage when people don't trust your health or your cleaning ability. Uh not that that was the case for me cuz I had tons of people over and I was definitely entertaining the people during that hard time. Here we are, episode 170, I believe the last one we did was right before our hiatus in uh, in the 50s, I think it was 154 was the last one I did, so this one's coming a little sooner than most, but like I said, I would like to think I, I would have a solo episode every 20 episodes just to remind people that there are other sides to this show. It's not always... Me bullshitting with someone, and sometimes this show can be very straightforward and just be me. Numero uno, El Capitan de la Muerte, who is doing the reading and the storytelling. So here we are, Lots of Pasta, episode 170. And the story we're reading today is something that I think uh, touches everyone who listens to this show. And I, I really do mean, like, everyone, because who hasn't uh, 
driven home at night and gotten a little spooked. Who hasn't been coming home from work, coming home from the bar, coming home from a friend's house, a parent's house, whatever, driving in the middle of the night, and you just get a little bit spooked. I was once even talking to Cannibal Siren, who was listening to one of her own fucking episodes when she was driving home, and uh, from, from her home state uh, back to PA, and she told me she had to cut the episode a little short because she started getting a little spooked. Little spookity poopity in the panthole region. And I I also know it's on the side of the fans. I'm talking to Billy motherfucking Wilkinson, and he's telling me that every time he goes on a road trip, he listens to the, the fucking the fucking uh Frowns McBoohoo episode of the pimp named Slick Slickback. I can't even to who with a pimp named Boohoo. So that's not even a scary episode. But here is my point. My point is... We're going to read a story tonight about driving in a car late at night. And the terrors that may happen therein. Uh, if I were to uh, wax poetic my own anecdote, I would say that um, I have spent a lot of my life driving in the northeastern PA region, um, even the Philadelphia and Bucks County region, um, and, and both of these places have a fuck ton of trees, and a fuck ton of mountains, and a fuck ton of wildlife, so let me tell you, some creepy shit can happen. <laughs> so uh, here I am, I'm driving, I think it's uh, 11 o'clock at night, I'm driving home, from my father's house in the Bucks County area. And my my brother and sister, uh, by blood, um, do not trust me when it comes to directions for good reason. I once ended up in Baltimore when I meant to go to Philadelphia. There is a reason for these things. So, they don't trust me with directions. I fucking find a way to lead us into the middle of a goddamn forest when we were supposed to be getting away from them. We now find ourselves down a dirt trail of some kind, and I am convinced that my GPS, my old Garmin, was trying to kill us because he knew his days were numbered. So, my brother, who is spum for you listeners, he is going off and, and yelling at me that I don't know what I'm doing and that I need to drive faster and get through these woods. Meanwhile, my sister in the backseat is complaining that she knows we're not supposed to be here, that we're not supposed to be going this way. She's, she's very panic-stricken. So I just come up with the idea that there was a point where I knew where we were going and there was a point where we deviated from that. So I'm going to go back to the deviation point and try a different direction and just hope that the Garmin reroutes us to, to finding our way home. When I get out of the car to make sure I have enough room to check that I can turn around on this gravel path in the middle of the fucking woods without hitting any trees, I notice about seven to eight feet in front of me that the road I was driving on drops about a solid, I don't know, four to six feet, enough to topple my fucking car. 
why this road was here, why it was graveled to make it look like cars could drive down this road, I don't know. But I thank the fucking gods that I got out of that car at that time, that I chose to turn around at that time, because that's some karma right there. I was lost. I, and I could have been dead and or injured with my siblings in a, in a car accident. So I, you know, I'm looking at you, imaginary uh, man in the sky, for looking out for me and my family, because that could have been a spooky spaghetti of a story. And uh, I turned around. I turned my car around. I drove 15 minutes back out of the woods. I found my way back onto the interstate, and I was able to, to drive home, and that just became... Uh, a spooky tale I tell about my GPS in the early 2000s, how it, it constantly tried to kill me. And uh, one of these days I might write like a Reddit no sleep about the Garmin days because nowadays everyone just has apps on their phones. I sound so old. Um, but there used to be little computers that you would strap to your car in various ways and you would plug in addresses and you would need to update their firmware by attaching them to, to actual computers and downloading programs into them. And then you would hook them up to your, to your windshield, your, your windscreen for you UK listeners, and you would input little directions on this little data pad and it would tell you where to go. And... It was all based off of whatever maps you had at the time, so you better hope you're up to date, because evidently, mine was not, and it tried killing me several times. There was one time it almost drove me directly into a lake. The only guy I remember looking at it and just thinking, this is ridiculous, and I took a right-hand turn. At one, I, knew, I knew with a giant body of water on my right that taking a right anywhere in the next mile would just have me in the fucking water. And I just remember looking at my fucking GPS and it's telling me to take a right in like 0.7 miles and I don't see a fucking bridge in sight. So this is, this is having me drive underwater to get to where I had to go. And um, cars don't work that way. So my, uh, my GPS back then, it, it, it led me wrong more than once. And there are tons of fun stories there of how people's GPSs did them dirty uh, for, for so many times, for so many years, you know. So here we're going to read a story about someone who evidently gets lost uh, driving or, or something happens late at night when driving. And either of those circumstances can be filled with uh, terror and horror, you know. What if, what if there is something out there? You know, if we're going to look at a movie like uh, The Monster that came out a couple years ago, a mom and her daughter are just driving home through a wooded area, and next thing you know, their car stalls, and there's something out there in the woods that hungers for their flesh. Or what if uh, perhaps we're doing, like, The Wrong Turn, the series I read with um, uh, Disco Dracula, and I'm not talking about the movie Wrong Turn, I'm talking about the... Uh, the road less traveled. What if it's a spooky trail that you take through the woods? You know, there, there are a lot of different ways that this can go, and there's a lot of different ways that this could be interpreted. But um, we're going to dive into the adventure right away. I have nothing else I want to talk about right now. So we are just going to get into the story, and this is going to be a fairly straightforward episode. So I'm sure uh, people don't mind a little bit of a 
relaxing episode, something that won't take me so long to to edit one of these weekends as a two or three hour episode does. So I hope you're sitting at home. I hope it's nice and dark. You know what? I hope you're alone. I usually don't wish that on people, but I'm alone. So I hope you're alone. And I hope we get to share in this smoking and spooky experience together. I'm going to take a hit and then I'm going to pass it to you, okay? Alright, this next one's yours. Take it from here. Oh, fuck. Without further ado, let's just hop into the no-sleep story of the evening, which is titled... Very, very acutely titled... What happened on my drive last night? This is an original post from August 31st of 2014. 6.30 in the evening. Clock out. Collect personal items. Say, see you next shift to the only co-worker I can actually tolerate for a full nine hours. Get in car. Begin long commute home. Right out of parking lot, left onto highway, drive 10 miles, take exit to Old Country Road. Drive 57 miles on said Old Country Road, right on dimly lit gravel road, drive three quarters of a mile, arrive home around eight. That's that's an hour and a half commute. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty shitty, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, I used to have to do something like that uh, twice a week when going to college. And I can say, even then, that shit sucked. And then I was dating a girl who lived an extra hour and a half away. So I was driving three hours every weekend. It fucking sucked. But man, you do it for the puss. So this is my normal routine at the end of the day. My normal routine is taking a rip, and I'm going to take a second rip of this bong that I'm smoking. This is my normal routine at the end of the day. Most people think that's too long of a commute for a crappy minimum wage job, but I don't mind it too much. I live alone, aside from a Weimaraner named Gunner, in a two-story ranch-style home in the middle of BFE, both of which I inherited after my parents divorced and my father passed away. I'm probably gonna get some eye rolls from this, but I don't know where BFE is. BFE. Oh. <laughs> but, but fucking Egypt, it means in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh, but fucking Egypt. So we have a, we have a dog, Gunner. Huh, she got to keep everything else. He just wanted the old quiet house where he could spend the rest of his days with his best friend unbothered. I'll admit, it gets lonely living so far from anyone I know, but I just can't imagine paying for a place in the city when this is free and much larger than anything I could afford. And of course there's Gunner, who seems to care for me 
by obligation, but doesn't really want anything to do with me. He keeps to himself, normally napping beside Dad's old recliner and makes his occasional rounds to make sure no one is on our property that shouldn't be. I'm sure if I ever made him move from this house, he'd hate me, so that's that. Plus, nothing compares to the gorgeous colors that burst from the horizon and the feeling of driving into a new sunset every evening. The brilliant shades of orange, pink, purple, and red that swirl together and make something different every time. I don't think I'll ever get tired of that view. And that, combined with having no one but Gunner to come home to a quick commute, isn't really necessary. So like I said, my commute home is pretty much exactly the same every evening. Until last night. 6.30 in the evening, clock out, collect personal items, say, see you Tuesday, I have off the, uh, today and tomorrow for the holiday, so the only co-worker I can tolerate for a full nine hours, get in the car, begin long commute home, if only I know how long today's would truly be. Right out of the parking lot, left onto the highway, drive ten miles, take exit to Old Country Road. The sunset isn't as beautiful as it normally is. In fact, it's kind of unsettling. The whole sky is this deep purple with veins of red running through it. Not like cotton candy swirl, like the fashion you'd normally expect, but like sharp lines, like crimson lightning bolts that just held their place. I guess I didn't notice on the highway what with the walls and trees and heavy traffic, but now I'm driving straight into it, and it's all I ever see. I've never seen anything like it. I'll have to research it when I get home, I guess. I've driven about 20 miles down the old country road by now. I've already passed the abandoned barn that marks mile 18. The sky darkened unusually fast. It's never black this time of year until I reach mile four. But tonight all I can see is the headlights behind me, the bit of road that lights illuminate, and the stars. Nine more miles under my belt and now I'm the only one on the road as far as I can see. The car that was behind me turned off at the gas station about a mile back. Quite honestly, that confused me, since I don't remember seeing a gas station on the way to work this morning, or ever in the past four years that I've been driving this route. I chalked it up to the fact that I could drive this in my sleep, and my surroundings are probably irrelevant at this point. I must have just missed it being built, having other things on my mind. I've driven about 22 more miles with no other car in sight. Most people who live out here don't work weekends, so I guess that's understandable. Since everything is now completely black and there's no star or headlight to be found, I'm running with my high beams on. I recently installed those uh, 10k HIDs that are ridiculously blue, so at least there's that. Two more miles. And I'm now wondering if my count is off because I should be able to see my street light by now. It's the only light for five miles either way, and I can always see it from at least three out. Maybe the bulb went out. 
six more miles. I've driven six more miles. I should have reached the gravel drive two miles ago, but there hasn't been a single lamppost. No turnoff or really anything at all since the gas station. No other car, no porch light in the distance of houses set back off the road, absolutely nothing. I haven't been drinking. I've been smoking. I've never done a single drug in my life, and I haven't taken any pain or cold meds. I don't have any health or mental conditions. I've never hallucinated in my life. So why in the hell have I driven a solid two, now three miles over on a commute that's always been the same time and distance? Why did I pass a gas station that I can swear wasn't there this morning? And why was the sky so grotesquely bloody looking when I got on this road? I've decided to floor it. Maybe I was driving slower than normal. Twelve miles later, still nothing. Nothing besides the fact that I now have no service to my radio, and the clock in my dash has started glitching. If the radio is off, it says zero, 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 zero for the time. If I try to find a station, it just flashes on different numbers as if it can't decide what time it is. I'm leaving it off. Nothing but static. Anyways. 19 more miles down and I'm low on gas. Maybe I should have stopped at the station. Still no sign of my drive or any other turnoff. My only options are to pull over or keep driving. If I turn around and try to get back to the station, I'll surely run out of gas before then. Flooring it really was a bad idea. I'm too chicken to pull over. I've seen those movies where the axe murderer drags you into the field and has his way with you. I'll pass on that and take my chances driving. My phone doesn't have service now either, which is odd because my carrier just put a new tower out here for the residents not even three months ago. I've driven at least 30 more miles by now and still nothing. My phone blacked out even though it only had 23% battery life left. <laughs> my, my radio and clock are still freaking out, and there's still nothing. Now I am concerned, to say the least. Two miles further and I finally see light. Not my street light, but two small lights in my rear view. And the yellowish specks are getting larger and larger much too quickly. Whoever's behind me is hauling ass and not aware that I'm in front of them. I keep driving for the next mile faster than I should considering my gas situation, but the lights behind me show no sign of slowing down. They're much too close to me now and brighter than any light I've ever seen. My whole car is flooded with this yellow light, and the sky is suddenly blazing red. Maybe it's just an optical illusion due to the headlights being behind me, but I don't like it. I veer off the road, coming to an abrupt stop on the right side, letting the lights and the massive 18-wheeler they belong to to plow past me. And just like that, as quickly as the light had flooded my car and the red taken over the sky, it was all black again. All except my headlights and the lamp post six feet in front of me. It's definitely my gravel drive because the lamp post marking it is dented in the same place my buddy hit mine with his dirt bike during one of his drunken adventurous escapades. 
I gather myself, trying with all my might not to have some sort of nervous emotional breakdown from all the confusion, and I slowly turn on my drive, feeling every bump of gravel under my tires, comforted by the distant sound of Gunner barking a half-assed welcome home of sorts, as he always does. I pull up to the house, looking the same as it has since my dad first left it to me. I sit trying to muster the strength to get out and run to the door. I feel so drained and obviously stiff from driving at least two and a half hours of the damned country road alone. I go to grab my phone from the middle console and I realize that my cock and I realize that my clock has finally changed, but it's still incorrect. <laughs> I wish it were 750. <laughs> it's almost 10 by now, if not later. I grab my phone and the rest of my stuff and I head inside, locking the car behind me, and Gunner greets me at the door, making it clear I haven't fed him all day. I fill his bowl, plug my phone in on the counter, and lock all the doors and windows for the night, just for good measure. I hear my phone ding, indicating it's back on 755. <laughs> my phone screen reads 755, and so does the microwave and my laptop that I left open on the dining room table. How did I drive more than double the miles in half the time? As if everything else that happened wasn't confusing enough. I've tried to sleep it off. Pretend like this was all some weird dream. The type of dream you get when you eat pepperoni before bed. <laughs> or the type of thing you would imagine from experiencing the things you, you do when you're on drugs. <laughs> oh, let's, uh, let's, let's do a little hit for the, um, the drug reference. Your turn. Oh, I have too many questions to sleep. I've been up all night and all morning trying to find some answers with no luck, so here I am consulting the all-knowing community of Reddit No Sleep. What the hell happened to me on my drive home last night? Alright, so we're skipping ahead to September 1st of 2014. My phone battery is low and I'm sitting inside the shop lobby while my car gets worked on. My brake lights aren't working, shocker, and I'm having them check everything else to make sure everything else is okay, but I do have an update. So I decide to go check out the gas station and bring Gunner with me for good measure. And I don't know what I expected to happen, but having company makes the suspense less terrifying. Maybe there will be a cashier who can answer all my questions. Maybe it won't be there at all. That would make this so much easier, supporting the theory of just a bad hallucination. I drive up the old country road. Thankfully, the mile count was like it should be, and I could see the station in the distance. It was there. I felt as though a turning in my stomach from the nerves as we pulled closer. It was there, but it was closed. And by closed, I don't mean closed in observance of the holiday or closed for the weekend. I mean closed for years, like abandoned and falling apart. I drive this road every day for four years and never see a single station. 
I see this for the first time on the weirdest night of my life, and it looks brand new and fully functioning. Now I go to check it out and hopefully fill up my tank and get some extra gas cans, and not even 48 hours later and it looks like it's a set design for a post-apocalyptic movie. Paint peeling, window cracked, sign falling, trash everywhere. I'm pretty sure there's a sleeping bag behind the dumpster over there. Gunner doesn't like it one bit. Most car rides, he's chill, just sitting in the passenger seat, head out the window, not this time. Before I even pull in, he's bowed up and growling. I park the car in the middle of the small lot, and he's barking louder and more aggressively than I've ever witnessed of him in my life. We stay in the car, parked in the same spot. He finally calms back down to a low growl, but he's set on something, and after a while, a local cop pulls in beside me and rolls down his window, and he asks if he can help me, and I ask him if he knew how long this station has been closed, and he just transferred in from out of town so he doesn't know anything about it. He kindly tells me that I'm technically trespassing, and that I should move along, but I sense an underlying tone of concern, as if he knows something more than he's letting on. But that was all he'd say, so... I'd put my car in drive and just got back on the road. We both headed into town, me in the lead, to find a functioning gas station, but him following to head back to the station, or finish his rounds, I guess. And after a brief stop at one red light on this whole street, he flashes his lights at me and I pull over, assuming I don't stop long enough or something. He comes up to my window and informs me about my brake lights or lack thereof and offers to follow me to a local mechanic, and I thank him and think to myself that I'm really thankful to not have to drive alone in case the sky decides to get weird again. So here I am, sitting in a shop lobby waiting for them to finish the car, charging my phone in the corner, posting this update. A gunner is tied up outside in the shade with a big bowl of water. The cop left once he knew we were taken care of and he gave me his number in case I needed anything. He even went and filled my gas cans for me while my car was in the rack before he left, and... What does he know? I might stay in town till sundown and see if I can get in the gas station. It's strange. Gunner never freaks out like that, and something is... in there. That tipped him off. And now... he's barking again. I should probably go see what's got him up this time. I'll update as soon as I can. It's a day later, September 2nd, 2014. I spent all the time I could last night before finally passing out, trying to upload the few pictures I managed to get, and I took some of y'all's advice. Phone of the dash to film. Picture the gas station in daylight and at night, etc. I filmed my whole drive, making sure that the road ahead was in full view of the camera, and even making sure to stop to tape and start a new one periodically so I'd have multiple small files instead of one massive one. And once I made it home, I sat down to review those first to see if there was anything I could have witnessed while driving, anything I could have missed while driving, or to see if there was anything worth posting. And there wasn't. <laughs> Every single video was just a silent black screen for the duration of the minutes I filmed. Worthless. <laughs> The pictures, on the other hand, those are still on the devices the same way they were the second I took them. I have some on my phone and some on my buddy's camera that I borrowed, and 
things I really need you guys to see, but I can't get them up to save my life. I transferred all the images from my camera and my phone to my laptop and I tried uploading them from there. I tried uploading them straight from my phone. I printed all the images, scanned them, saved them in a new folder and tried uploading those. I took pictures of the prints and tried uploading them. And every time I select a photo to upload, it would do its thing and all. Normal, right? No. No matter what picture I selected, no matter what folder it was saved in, no matter what device it came from, every single time it would upload as the picture of Gunner that I linked in the comments on my first post. I even did it when I tried to upload the pictures straight from my phone, and I don't even have that picture saved on there anymore. I cleared all my pictures to make room for the videos beforehand, just in case, and no matter what I do, it's always the same precious picture of Gunner. I've never been a believer in the paranormal or extraterrestrial, but someone doesn't want these pictures and videos seen by anyone else, and that is evident. I'll keep trying after work to upload the pictures. Maybe I'll try on my work computer during break and see what happens. I really don't want to update on last night's events without those photos, but I feel like I can't even begin to describe what happened without showing you. I still don't believe everything myself. Forgive me, y'all. If anyone knows of any other way I can get these pictures up, please help me. In the meantime, I'll give you a bit of backstory regarding my dad and our house and answer some of the more commonly asked questions that seem to the most important or relevant to solving this. I'll try my best to still respond to the comments, but I know not everyone reads them, so I figured it's best to answer them here. On the end of each side of the old country road is a small town that leads into a bigger city, and if you travel between the two, you have the option of the straight through old country road with all its bumps and endless fields, or you can take the highway that goes out and around all the farmland with distant views of the surrounding cities. I grew up in a townhouse in the city opposite of the one I work in now. My mom had an office in one of the nicest buildings there, and my dad had his own construction company, and most of his jobs took place in the country, which he loved. My parents have very different lifestyle preferences. My uncle had a house built for his family out in the quiet country, and my dad's company was the one who built it. So once it was finished, my dad and I spent every Saturday there. They would grill the best burgers around and focus the entire day on college football. I would just hang out on the front porch with my aunt and my two little cousins, talking about anything, everything. Sometimes my mom would join us, but she'd usually just go shopping with her sister or have a spa day until we came back home. When my uncle got a huge job opportunity out of the state, he offered to sell the house to my dad at the cost of what he still owed on the building loan. My uncle wasn't asking for a profit, and it was my dad's dream house without even consulting my mom. My dad said yes. By the time my uncle was ready to move out and we were ready to move in, I was starting college, so we just made the transition all at once and it saved me from having to pack twice. Once I finished school, I moved into a studio apartment in the same city I grew up in. I wanted to be close to both of my parents until I could figure out what the next step was. 
my parents were finalizing their divorce. <laughs> Irreconci irreconcilable, irreconcilable. I think he means inconsolable differences, but it's irrecons irrecon irreconcilable. That's not a word. Whatever word is here, it's not real. <laughs> Here's. They had differences. Here's where Gunner makes his debut. When things started going downhill between my parents, my dad wanted someone who could always keep him company, especially since my brother lived so far away. So he'd always wanted a Weimaraner. Anyway, Gunner was just the cutest puppy I'd ever seen, and the bond between my dad and him was straight out of a movie. Post-divorce, my mom moved back into the city and my dad stayed at his house in the country, and everyone was finally calming down and we were all making it work. Both of my parents seemed happier in their elements, where they were always meant to be, and that made me happy. But then Dad got sick. It was just a lot of things all at once that slowly became too much for his body to handle. The doctors blamed it on 30 plus years of physical work constantly in the sun combined with the stress of a divorce and the additional hereditary medical issues. The first year wasn't so bad, but eventually I quit my job in the city and moved in to help take care of him. I got two solid years with him, by his side every day. I learned a hell of a lot more about football than I'll ever need to know, and I can grill a pretty mean steak now. Every day was the same, but every day was special. Coming downstairs in the morning to see him sitting in his old recliner watching his favorite game, Gunner laying on the floor right next to his chair, usually on a blanket, Dad laid down for him. Coffee, already brewed for me, bacon on the skillet. No matter how sick he was, breakfast was always a priority. <laughs> we always ate dinner at the table. Granted, you could still hear the game from the living room TV, but we sat in the dining room no matter what. It was a tough two years. Watching my dad lose his strength, but for those two years, I will always be thankful. After he passed, I knew I needed to stay. Stay because I knew he'd turn over in his grave before he'd ever let that house go, and stay because, just like I needed him, his four-leg best friend needed me. So I did my grieving, I had my time, and I made the house a home, even in its emptiness. I decided to find a job, the job I have now, and it's in the city I'd visited once, maybe twice in my life. I chose that city over the one I was raised in, only because it was a hair closer to the house, and because I figured a change of scenery would be nice. It's been a little over four years since he's passed, but Gunner and I have been making it. I just hope that we can do the same through this, whatever this is. So that's where the third part ends, and I gotta say, I really like the way that this is written. Um, not just the post aspects, but just the guy isn't... The guy isn't just laying in with detail about his past to, you know, make the story make more sense. He's, he's laying in with context to make you understand him. And I can appreciate that about any story, really, because we're we're seeing and we're hearing, but it's it's not just 
him telling. He's he's showing us parts of his life as well, you know. So this next update is a day later. It's September 3rd, 2014. After trying some of y'all's suggestions as well as a few other ideas, I finally have a couple pictures. Your turn. I was only able to salvage the ones from my phone, but at least I have what I really need you to see. The only thing that worked was putting my coworker's SIM card into my phone, texting the pictures to a new email, saving them onto his computer, and then uploading them. I don't know why that, of all options, was the one that worked, but I won't complain. I was only able to do it with a few pictures before I had to give him his SIM back so he could leave, so I prioritized. They're all pretty dark, because I went at night and didn't want to use flash and attract attention, but somehow that's... There's this weird light streak on them. I don't know if it's my phone lens messed up or what. Hopefully I can get that looked at soon. Um, but here's the update. I exit the shop lobby to see what Gunner was all worked up about, and he's barking just as aggressively as he was at the gas station, and he's pulling so hard against his leash that I'm afraid that it would snap from his harness. I follow his gaze, and he's pointing to a semi-truck with a massive dent in the side, just like it parked in the lot. I should have probably say bump instead, because it looks like something large and heavy dented the metal wall from the inside out. The driver had just gotten out of the cab when I'm walking outside, handing his keys over to the mechanic, and I watch as he walks towards the shop, not directly towards me, but to the drink machine on my left, and Gunner pays him no attention, he just continues barking at the truck across the lot, and the driver gets his drink and he sits in one of the faded lawn chairs beside the machine. Trying to make small talk, I ask him where he's headed, and he mentions a town I've only vaguely heard of that's a few cities over, and he asks me about my car and about Gunner, but now he's sitting beside me, still eyeing the truck, but he's quieted down. I ask if he happened to drive home on the road the other night, and he says today was his first time in town. He was running the highway when his check engine light came on, so he pulled off at the first exit he saw. I don't know whether or not to believe him, but they're pulling my car off the rack now, so I don't have an excuse to just keep asking the guy questions. It turns out both of my brake lights were fried, no telling when that happened. They replaced them as well as my timing belt since I passed the suggested mileage. They inspected everything else, but didn't find any other problems, so Gunner and I load up and head to my buddy's apartment. I have him meet me outside to talk since dogs aren't allowed in his building and I'm not leaving Gunner outside alone. I tell him about my car problems and ask him if he's ever noticed the gas station leaving out the other events. I trust him, but I don't want to involve him in anything until I know it's safe. He doesn't recall there being a gas station there. But he doesn't come over often since we work conflicting shifts and when we do hang out it's usually at the local sports bar or something. He used to dabble in photography and he was actually pretty good, but he got bored with it. He still has a few good cameras so I ask if I could borrow one for a project I'm working on and he lends me a camera, some memory cards, a spare battery, and a charger. Thankfully he's not too curious. Gunner and I spent the rest of the afternoon in the park. We sit in the grass down by the pond, and he's content with just laying there and resting. 
a little girl wanted to play with him and he licked her face <laughs> from chin to eyes and she thinks it's the silliest thing in the world. He's always been exceptionally good with kids and I'm glad that he can have some pleasant attention compared to the morning he's had. Sundown finally comes around and we head to the gas station. There's no street lamps around, none of the lights on the station work. I park and I turn off the car so no light is coming from us either. I don't want to attract any unnecessary attention. I sit there for a few minutes contemplating just ab about leaving. Gunner is quiet, but I can tell that his senses are heightened. I finally gather up the camera equipment and my courage and my bulls, and I leash Gunner, and together we start to scope out the property. Nothing out of the ordinary, just random trash and debris. After circling the building, I decide to take my chances and try to get inside. All the doors are locked, but one of the windows in the back is broken. I tie Gunner's leash to a pipe against the wall and use an empty bottle I found on the ground to push away any of the remaining glass in the window. I look to make sure there's no one inside, and I climb through. I quickly find and unlock the back door and untie Gunner. We go inside, shutting the door behind us, but leaving it unlocked in case we need to leave quickly. He's still quiet, but he's begun sniffing around as if he picked up a scent and he's trying to track it. I look around, keeping Gunner on a tight leash for his safety, but letting him lead. I don't find anything but trash, old food, and the occasional dead bug. We go through every aisle, looking for anything unusual or out of place, and most of the candy and the snack on the shelves are non-perishable, but the ones I find with actual expiration dates, most are still good. I decide to check the counter and registers to see if there's any receipt or file with dates on them, but all the records have been cleared out and it's same for the back office. Gunner is still sniffing around, getting more impatient in the search, but I've just about given up hope that we'd find any answers here, so we start heading to the back door, and suddenly Gunner's leash is pulled from my hands as he takes off to sniff beneath a door I didn't think to check before. He's scratching at the door as if he's desperate to get in. And I just stand there, staring at the door and at Gunner's frantic attempt to get in, torn between my fear of finding out what's on the other side and my slightly greater fear of never getting answers. And finally, I give in. Mainly because I know if I don't, Gunner will hurt himself trying to tear through the door. And under my breath, I count to three and rip the door open like you do when you pull, pull off a band-aid. No monsters, no aliens, no homeless men with machetes, just a dusty, old broom closet. Empty. Aside from a single cardboard box, closed on the ground. Gunner almost immediately starts whining and clawing at the box, as if I hid his favorite toy in there or something, and nervously, I pull open one of the top flaps of the box and my stomach begins to turn in the process. I don't understand. Why, how, is the hoodie that my dad always wore on cold winter nights, the one I keep 
in my closet's top shelf and where when I really miss him is now in this cardboard box in the closet of an abandoned gas station that didn't exist before this weekend. Why and how is it folded on top of a stack of prints of pictures of Gunner? I drop the camera in the box, grab it, and Gunner's leash and bolt out of there. With the box in the back seat and Gunner in the front, I drive home faster than I ever have. It's beyond me that I didn't blow a tire or anything, but at that moment it didn't matter. Someone was in our house with our things with his picture, but when we got there, everything was in its place. The doors were all locked like I had left them, as well as the windows. I've been good about that since I live alone. Had I not found the box, I never would have assumed anyone had been there besides Gunner and I, and I ran upstairs to check my room, and everything was just as it should be, aside from the hoodie missing from its place. I hadn't worn it in a while, so it could have been missing for days or weeks even, and I, I may not have known. But no matter when it was, someone was in my house. I went back downstairs, turning every light on along the way, and I immediately started to try to upload those pictures, but you know what happened. Gunner curls up by Dad's old recliner, clearly tired and upset, and I put the hoodie beside him to make him feel better. I find the cop's cell phone number and contemplate calling him for company. I decide to call the station first, to see if the story lines up, and surprisingly it does. Recent transfer, enough experience to be out on his own. Gunner seemed to like him, so I give him a call. He must have written down the number wrong or something's wrong with his line because I get that automated message that tells you the number you're trying to reach is not in service. Great. I spend half the night trying to get the damn pictures to upload, but they don't, so I pack a small bag, trickle, triple check that everything is locked, and Gunner and I spend the rest of the night in a motel in town. Most of the ones around here don't allow animals, but thankfully I know the girl working the counter and she lets it slide. I can't sleep much, but at least I can watch TV without jumping every ten seconds. I take a shower to clear my head, gunner alternating, pacing, and laying on the tile floor waiting for me. Once the sun is up, I load us back up and we head back to the house to check on everything. It seems the same, everything exactly where I left it. I call in sick from work to keep an eye on gunner and do research. I pack up my laptop and anything else we may need, and we begin walking out the door to find the cop walking up the front steps. <laughs> I'm caught off guard, but pleased to see a comforting face, and he greets Gunner with an ear scratch and tells me that we need to talk. His voice is kind, but his eyes are concerned. I immediately ask him if he, what he knows. What do you know? But his... Uh, he simply answers, enough. He can't tell me what it is, but that he's here because of it to investigate and end it. Before I even tell him what all has happened, he tells me that Gunner and I should get out of town for a few days. It isn't a threat, but it's a desperate warning. He helps me pack up any valuables or sentimental items, as well as Gunner's things, and he gives me his correct number. A digit was written wrong the first time. 
He also hands me an envelope of cash to quote-unquote last me a few days if I need it. My mom is out of town on business for a few days, so I give her a call and she says that we can crash there if we need to, and I don't tell her why, just that I needed to be in the city for a little bit. On my way there, I call my uncle to talk to him about everything. I trust him more than anyone else since my dad passed. He's excited that I called since we hadn't spoken in a few weeks, and I can hear that my aunt's on the other end telling him to say hello to me for her. He tells me he's stepping outside so we can talk, and he asks what's wrong, because he can tell that I sound different, and I begin to tell him about what happened, everything, but compressed so that I don't overwhelm him. Once I finish and catch my breath, it's quiet for a solid minute. I ask him if he's still there, and he tells me, in a tone I've never heard from him before, that he has no idea what I'm talking about, not to ask him about it again, that he loves me, and he'll talk to me later. That kinda upsets me, that he reacted like that, like, is he mad at me? Does he think I'm insane? Does he know something about all this? I, I don't want to call him back and bother him, so I guess I'll wait. I finally get to my mom's place, and I've been here for about four hours or so, researching everything I possibly can on all of this. And after some serious digging, I find that the sky thing that happened the first night has happened two other times in my town, once in 86 and once in 71. One was in broad daylight, and one was really similar to mine. Both people moved weeks after it happened and refused to talk about the occurrences that followed. One person is basically off the map completely, but I found a profile for the other one, so I'm trying to contact them. I'm also looking into the surrounding areas, but I haven't found anything yet. As for now, Gunner and I are safe, scared and confused, but safe. And when I have any more news, I'll let you know. Yeah, Uncle definitely fucking knew something, man. That uncle's response was fucking scripted. <sighs> I do not know anything. I love you. Goodbye. Like, dude, something totally happened there, and it's not good. And that hoodie and pictures were like... It might have been bait. It might have been a trap. Um, it might be something to protect him. Maybe the cop put it there. I don't know. There's something going on there. Maybe even some time displacement stuff. Dimension hopping type of stuff. Um, I don't know. The, the station is talked about so mystically, it almost reminds me of the diner with the rabbit hole in 11-22-63. Like, it can pop through time and space. Like, maybe, maybe, um... There's some uh, dimensional shifting going on there or something. It's interesting to think about. The whole the whole sky thing has happened before, too. I remember reading a, a story with Sir Booberry about... Um, it was very Stranger Things. There was, like, a, a kid calling his brother during a storm, and then he claims to get home, but the brother's home, and he, he can't find him, and they both describe the same house completely different weather and different situations and it's just it's very clear that the uh the younger brother like went through the fucking twilight zone you know popped out the other side you know the upside down 
as Stranger Things would put it. So I, I'm hooked. I love this fucking story. This, this is the type of shit that I'm talking about. You're driving home. It's the middle of the night. The sky turns red and weird shit starts to happen. <laughs> it reminds me of that, um, that 11 miles story that I read. I think I read that with Disco as well. Um, you know, you drive 11 miles in a car and you get to grant a wish or something. Maybe I read that with Harold Heavy Hands. I don't remember, but there's another fun one about driving in the middle of the night in order to get something out of the experience, but it's like super spooky, you know? Every hour something terrible happens, I think, something, or every mile. It's 11 miles, not 11 hours. Anyway, this is the fifth part, a day later, September 4th, 2014. I finally get a response from the profile I found of the person who experienced the sky in 71. I had messaged her privately explaining what happened to me and I, how I found her by name and while researching similar occurrences, I left her my number as well. I get a call a few hours later from a very upset-sounding woman who sounded closer to my age, asking if this was some sort of sick joke. I tell her that I don't understand what she means and I ask if this is the same woman I messaged and she explains that I'm looking for her mother, who was declared mentally insane in 1996 for talking about the same things I was trying to talk about, but passed away three months ago. She tells me that she's not sure if I'm crazy too, or just plain rude, but she doesn't want me to attempt to contact anyone in her family ever again. Back to square one. I try calling my uncle a few times, but it rings once or twice and then goes to voicemail. He's ignoring my calls and I don't know why. He's the type of person who can... A phone can go off in the dead of night and he'll still answer. No matter who is calling, because he always wants to make sure everyone is okay and is willing to do anything he can to help anyone. I call the cop to see if he can talk more, but he informs me that he's on duty and will call me in three or four hours. I haven't gotten much sleep lately, and I feel like I'm going in circles with the research, so I decide to take a nap. I, I sprawl out on the couch, Gunner curled up at my feet, and I browse Netflix. Before I can even pick anything, I pass out and I end up sleeping much longer than my body needed to. I wake up to find everything as it should be. Gunner safely at my feet, the Netflix menu on the same page it was when I fell asleep, and my phone where it was left with a dying battery. I was hoping for a missed call from my uncle, or at least from the cop, but all I have is a text message from my mom asking how Gunner and I are doing, and a text message from the cop. Not an apology for not calling, not an explanation for all of this, just a man's name that I've never heard. I quickly reply with a question mark, but never receive a response, so I plug it in my phone and grab my laptop and hesitantly search for the name he gave me. At first, nothing relevant comes up, just a few social media profiles and a business ad or two. I visit the profiles, and the person in the picture looks vaguely familiar, but not familiar in a way that I know, but familiar in a way that you're out of running errands and the stranger you bumped into going to the post office is walking out of the grocery store when you're walking in, that sort of thing. But then it clicks. 
I navigate back to the article I found, the one with the information and the two occurrences in my town. The man shown with the experience in 86 looks just like the man I'm searching for now, but older, of course. I message him with generally the same thing I messaged the other lady, excluding how I got his name, and not even 20 minutes later my phone rings. How did you find me? Are the first words I hear. He doesn't sound angry, but concerned. I briefly introduce myself and tell him in better detail what happened, and I tell him about the cop, and when I finish, he's quiet, but I don't want to push him. I hear him curse under his breath as if his worst fear was confirmed, and then all of a sudden he tells me everything. He had been driving home from the grocery store and started seeing veins that looked like both fire and electricity spreading through the afternoon sky, and then all at once went completely black for what could have been more than three minutes but felt like a lifetime. There was an unbelievably brilliant flash of light that lingered for a moment, making it impossible to see, and when his vision finally cleared up, the sky went back to normal. The events that followed were nothing short of bewildering, some even traumatizing. He goes into a post office one day, walks back out ten minutes later in a town he's never seen in his life. Not a different time frame in the same town, an entirely different town. He goes to work Monday, the same job he's worked for 25 years, to find out that it never existed. He comes home one day to find his house completely on fire. He runs inside knowing his little girl is in there, and when he gets through the door, it's completely fine, as if there was never so much as a match flame. He wakes up in the middle of the night to see his wife lying in bed beside him, reading her favorite book when she passed away two years ago. Three weeks later, he moves him and his daughter to another state, changes his name, and never experiences anything like it, or ever spoke of it ever again. He warns me to be careful and to be safe, and that he wishes me the best, and he never took the time to find out what really happened, and he never truly wanted to know. I'm glad he took the time to tell me about his experiences so I don't feel crazy, but I had hoped he would have had more answers. I continue researching anything I can, but don't find anything else that's helpful, and due to the extensive nap I took, I have a hard time sleeping, so I stay up late watching a movie to take my mind off of things. It's almost midnight when I hear a ding across the room, and I forgot that I left my phone charging, and I check it to find a text from my uncle. When he and my dad were kids, they came up with a code so they could always pass each other notes without their parents knowing what they were talking about. It was just about sports or silly things, and it was a simple code, but it made them feel like secret agents, and they taught me when I was younger, and they'd write things out for me to crack, funny jokes and things of that nature, just to entertain me. Like, I was having a feeling this isn't one of those fun jokes. I print the text message so I can see if it's easier and highlight the numbers, and I make a page on my laptop to decipher it. It doesn't take me long, and I'm looking for my mom's camera to take a weird... to take a picture of the text and the result. My phone is still doing that weird light streak sometime, and I don't feel like dealing with it. When Gunner jumps up and runs to the front door, barking as if a mailman or a stranger was approaching. Before I can even get to the door to check everything out, a thick envelope 
it slid under the door. I immediately check the locks to make sure they're secure and then look through the peephole, and whoever delivered this must have left because all I see is empty hallway, and Gunner is just sniffing the envelope now. It doesn't say anything on the front, no name or address, so I open it. It's nothing but a slip of paper with an address to a P.O. box and a small gold key. I guess I know where I'm going first thing in the morning. I finally find my mom's camera so I can take the pictures of the message from my uncle and now the key, too. I deciphered my uncle's note. Home is not safe anymore. Do not go back. What has happened before will happen again is unexplainable. There is a glitch in the system, if you will. What is reality and what is not will begin to collide. If you want to remain in reality, you must hold on to it, find your anchor, and do not let go. This says final update, September 5th, 2014. <laughs> I'm excited. Glitch in the Matrix. This is, unfortunately, my final update. For some of you, this may not be a satisfying answer, but after everything that's transpired, I found closure with the situation and I'm content with the resolution. I want to thank you, sincerely, for all of your condolences and concerns and for saying, staying with me through this. It's really meant a lot to me and I'll always hold on to that. I spend the next hour trying to call my uncle about the text he sent me, but he never answers. So I text the cop, thanking him for the name and asking him if we can meet soon to discuss more, and he responds saying that he'll call me in the morning, but that is it. I can't sleep. I can't sit. All I can do is pace the floor, and it's making Gunner antsy. He's the type of dog who always has to sit on your toes when you're doing dishes or lean against your leg when you're talking to someone, so he doesn't know what to do since I haven't stood still in God knows how long. I look up the P.O. box address listed on the slip and find the post office is in the city I work in, the one on the other side of the country road from where I'm currently staying now, in my mom's apartment. For two, my two options are to either take the highway, which is almost twice the drive, or risk going down the old country road past our house. Not going at all is definitely not an option, because I'm desperate for answers, and I'm certain my mom wasn't expecting a late-night package while she's out of town. I figure it wouldn't do any harm to drive by and check on the house as long as I don't stop or go in. I really miss being home, but I still don't understand what's going on or what the risks are, so I won't push it. At sunrise, I pack up our things, and Gunner and I hit the road. I get a coffee for myself and a treat for him. He deserves it after all this. It's weird driving the country road from this direction. It's been so long. I find some good music on the radio and roll the windows down a bit, trying to feel somewhat normal. And Gunner tries to put his head out the window, but his big floppy ears get caught in the wind. He, they keep covering his eyes, so he gives up. I can't remember 
the last time I took him for a drive before everything happened and make a mental note to give him more attention if we get through this. I, I have a feeling Gunner is not gonna get through this, ladies and gentlemen, and for that reason I'm gonna say you should take another hit right now because that dog is probably getting put down. I don't know why anyone thinks dogs not getting killed in horror genres is ever something to hold on to, because let me tell you, fuck, Friday the 13th kills a couple dogs, and so did VHS Part 2. And that shit fucked me up. That dog crying gets dropped out of a fucking alien ship. <sighs> Eventually, I roll up the windows and turn the air back on, because this... <coughs> Take another hit, fucker. Eventually, I roll up the windows and turn the air back on because the sun is unbelievably bright today. And it's ridiculously hot outside. We're coming close to passing my driveway, so I slow down a bit, debating whether or not to pull in. I slow to a stop in front of the drive to check the mailbox, but it's nothing but junk mail and a few bills, and I toss them in the back seat to sort out later as I stare down the drive. You can see the house from the road, but the driveway is three quarters of a mile, so you can't really see it all that well. I decided to turn in just to check. Make sure the house is alright. I swear to myself I won't get out of the car, that I won't even park. I'll just turn around and drive back out. And Gunner gets excited because he knows we're home, but I don't let it get to me. As I'm turning in... The station changes, but I just assume I accidentally hit the button on the steering wheel. So I change it back, and I continue driving, and as we get further down the drive, the radio turns to static, which is odd because I never lose signal on my driveway like that. I pull up in front of my house, leaving enough room to turn around and drive back out, and everything looks normal until I realize a window is broken. Not just one window, but all of them. I assume someone broke in, but it doesn't make sense for someone to break every window, including the one upstairs. I immediately throw my car in park and call the cop, and he tells me he's on duty for 20 more minutes, but as soon as he's done, he'll, he'll come and check it out. But until then, he advises me to stay away. I pull back out of the drive, comforting Gunner to let him down and continue toward the post office. There's two in the city, always has been, but I've only ever been one of them, and this isn't that one. I roll the windows down a crack for Gunner and lock the car. I walk into a large room with shelves and boxes of envelopes and stamps to purchase and a counter with tellers to assist with mail, and to the right there's a wall of windows that shows a room full of P.O. boxes and a door that leads to them. I go through the door, and I'm greeted by a kind woman at a small counter, and she asks if I'm here to rent a new box or to pick up mail from one, and I tell her I'm just here to check mine, but she asks for my key. I pull it out of the envelope, and she apologizes, informing me that those aren't the keys that they use. Great. Now I have an address to a box, and don't have a way in, and now I have a key with no clue what it unlocks. She stares at me, waiting for me to respond. I didn't expect someone to be monitoring the boxes, so I just up with something and tell her that my family rents a P.O. box. I explain that they're out of town and left me in charge, but I lost the keys, and I found this, and I thought it was it, but I could be mistaken. She tells me it's fine, and asks for an ID so she could look it up by last name, and yeah, that's not gonna work. 
Well, I guess they knew you'd lose the key because they put it under your first and last name. That was easy. Excuse me? I have never been to this post office, let alone ever rented a P.O. box, and now this lady is telling me that my lie checks out and I do indeed have a P.O. box. She gets the spare key from the back office and helps me locate the box, and I open it to find another envelope, this time addressed to me at this P.O. box with no return address. I lock the box back and thank her for her time. I grab a bottle of water from the vending machine on my way out and put Gunner on his leash. We walk to the park across the street from the post office, and I find a bench in the shade. I tie his leash to the foot of the bench and fill his travel bowl with water, finishing off the bottle myself. I sit down and finally open the envelope to find a letter, one page full of handwriting that I'd recognize anywhere. If you are reading this, then it's happening, and I'm not there to help you. My sweet daughter, I need you to read these words and to remember them. You are not alone in this. This happened before to many others, and it will happen again to people after you, and you will get through this. I raised you to be brave. You're as brilliant as your mom and as stubborn as your old man. By now, you are probably seeing things that contradict your reality. Look past them. The key to success isn't just winning, it's never quitting. Don't quit fighting, don't run away. Even when they try to make you leave the home we built for you, you stand your ground, find your anchor, and do not let it go. Love you forever. Dad. P.S. If you're given a small gold key, go into the workshed behind the house. Look for a small metal box with a lock. If it's where I left it, it's on the top shelf behind a box of nails. The key to success isn't just winning. It's never quitting. He used to tell me that when we'd watch football and his favorite team would be losing. He'd always say that it's not always about this big glorious win, but that you tried your hardest and fought for what you wanted. That it's never a lose, but a lesson learned for next time. That if you give up, if you quit, if you run away, you lose every time. But if you fight and still lose, and you get up and try again, that is the true success. Find your anchor. I hear laughter, and I look up to see Gunner playing with that same little girl that was in the other park that one day, but something is strange. Her brown wavy hair and even deeper eyes, skin that just looks a tad bit sun-kissed but not too much, and that blue and white dress just like the one my mom bought for me for my sixth birthday when my dad spent the whole day calling me his little princess. This little girl in front of me is me 20 years ago I sit still as a statue in awe of the sight in front of me I want to watch it forever 
but I become aware of the letter still in my hands and realize what's going on. I quickly gather our things, untie Gunner's leash from the bench, and run towards the car. I toss everything in the back and secure him in the passenger seat, and I still don't fully understand how all of this is possible, and maybe I never will, but I know what I need to do. I make my way through the busy streets, heading towards the city limits. I see the police station down a side of the road, so I alter my route and pull in the lot, and I see the cop I met at the gas station, the one who never calls me back, standing outside his car talking on the phone. Gunner is happy to see him, but the feeling isn't mutual for me. I leave the car running, and I jump out, walk straight up to him, and demand that he tells me what he knows, and he gives me a confused look and tells me the person... And he tells the person that he's on the phone with that he'll call them right back. And he asks me who I am and if he can help me. What the hell are you talking about? Who am, who am I? <laughs> who am I, you ask? I remind him that we just spoke this morning and that he was supposed to check on my house for me. And I demand again that he tell me what he knows, and he says he has no idea what I'm talking about or who I am, and the look on his face is making me believe him. Another cop comes out of the station and walks over to us, and he kindly asks if there's something that he can help with, and I explain to him that this cop had gone by my house to check on a break-in that was supposed to give me an update, but now he's pretending he doesn't know me. And the gentleman explains to me that this is impossible because the cop I'm referring to is a new transfer from out of town and has been doing ride-alongs all week with other officers, and they've been together all day. The cop insists he doesn't know me, and I'm starting to question if we ever really did talk, if I ever really did meet this cop. Even more confused and more determined, I get back on the road with Gunner, going much faster than I probably should, heading for the one place everyone swears I shouldn't. If this thing, whatever this thing is, is going to make me crazy, or worse, kill me, going to eventually kill me, I'd like it to happen in the comfort of my own home, and if not, well, then what the hell am I so afraid of? We drive down the old country road, the same one I'd driven for four years straight, the same one that all of a sudden decided to turn on me just a few days ago. This time there's no sky color change, no semi-trucks threatening my life, and the gas station is fully functioning again. But the things along the way get much worse. There's a wreck in the middle of the road, a three-car pile-up, and one of them is very clearly my aunt's car. I can see the unicorn sticker that her youngest daughter stuck on the door, which they never bothered to scrape off. There's a bloody glass everywhere, and everything in me begs to pull over and get them out, but I know that I can't, so I keep driving faster, and there's a sweet little old couple who lives in the house tucked in the stretch of woods up on the left. I know them because they always gave us a Christmas card and a tin of holiday popcorn every year, and as I pass, I can see a blazing flame making its way through the trees, inching closer to the house by the second, and I remember the man I talked to with a story about his house, and I keep driving. 
I'm pulling into the drive, and I see a young gunner who strayed too far from the front porch running around in the yard, crying for someone to help him find his way back. And I hold back tears and turn in the drive, talking to my gunner, hoping my own voice will drown out the sound of his little whimpers, and halfway down, I see my uncle, my cousins, and 13-year-old me playing a crappy game of football in the yard. But I keep driving. I pull past the house, ignoring the fact that I'm driving over a shard of glass from the still-broken windows, and I park in front of the work shed and I leash Gunner and get out, realizing I don't know where the key is at that point. I don't have time to look for it. I grab the shovel leaning against the side and I swing at the lock until it breaks. I bring Gunner inside and I pull the door closed behind us and just as it starts to rain, I find the small stepladder and I climb up to the top shelf, pushing aside the box of nails, revealing a small metal box that my dad described in the letter. We go back to the car and I grab my bag and we go in the house through the back door and the rain has quickly escalated into a storm and I suddenly realize that it's freezing. I keep Gunner on the leash and we make our way through the house and first the kitchen, then the dining room. I can hear the familiar sound of a game coming from the living room, but we continue. We're facing the back of a recliner and I can see the dark brown with a hint of gray hair that the hood of that old camp sweatshirt resting on his neck. I have a lump in my throat and my stomach is in knots, but I can't stop. I walk past the recliner, I walk past the recliner, looking away from it for as best as I can, but I can feel Gunner pulling on my leash to get to him, and I pull him tight, still averting my eyes, and get us up the stairs and into my room, and I lock the door behind us, and I close the curtain over my window, and I can hear the storm raging outside. My room looks like it did when I was a kid. Not how it should be now that I'm an adult, but I throw my bag and Gunner's leash on the bed and I grab the letter and the metal box and I close us in the closet. It's too dark to see anything, but I feel Gunner beside me and I wait for something, for anything, to happen. And it all seems like we're going backwards in time and hours have passed all at once. I go to check the metal box for any answers, but I realize that I left the key in my bag, so there goes that. The storm sounds like it's in my ears, but I pull Gunner closer and I wait. And it sounds like a train is running through my house, and the walls begin to shake. A thin but brilliant light shines through the door, through the crack, and the sounds and the vibrations get more intense. I curl up as tightly with Gunner as I can, wondering if this is the last breath I'll ever take. And then, as quickly as it showed up, the light disappears and everything stops and everything goes silent. The warmth of the day comes back into my skin. I let Gunner go, still scratching at his back to let him know that it's okay, and I crawl to open the door, and I open it just enough to see through, and my room is back to normal. Everything is where I left it, and everything is how it should be. 
I slowly get up and I walk out, waiting to find something wrong. With Gunner on my heel, I make my way to the window and pull back the curtain. And I'm shocked by the sunlight that pours in, still expecting it to be gray from the storm. I find my window to be whole again, without a single scratch, and I scan the yard to find nothing but grass, fence, and trees. Nothing in the street as far as I can see, and everything looks normal. I slid to the floor, my back against the wall, looking at Sweet Gunner, hoping to God that this is finished. I wait, sitting there, expecting it all to come crashing back for something in my reality to glitch, but it never does. The sun finally sets, naturally, normally, the way it's meant to, and Gunner jumps on the bed, knocking my bag off, spilling all the contents, and the sunlight reflects off the little golden key drawing my attention to it, and I remember the box. I grab them both and I sit on the bed beside Gunner, nervous to see what's inside, and I open it to find one single picture. I remember this picture. It's the one my dad took of me, asleep on the couch with Gunner snuggling up to me. It was the first few weeks of Gunner being with my dad, and I was helping house train him and everything. He always said it was one of his favorite memories because it's one of the only times he remembers that Gunner actually wanted me over him. I'm flooded with emotion, happiness, remembering the good times, remembering my dad and his love for us, confusion about everything, heartache from missing him, and as I wipe the tears streaming down my face, the picture falls from my hand, face down into the box, and in that same all too familiar handwriting are two simple words. My anchors. Wow. That is an impactful fucking story. It's like heavily implied that his dad, or I realized halfway through the narrative, or nearly at the end of it, that the main character is a girl, so now I have to say her. Because they never clued it in beforehand. Um, they heavily imply that the narrator's father um, might have been dealing with this, dealing with those events at different points of his life. Maybe dealing with his own glitch, you know, his own matrix. Um, it's certainly fucking interesting to think about, isn't it? The Glitch in the Matrix is one of, you know, it's one of my favorite conspiracy things, you know? Like, it's one of my favorite, like, lifetime conspiracies, you know? Because there is no fucking way to confirm it. <laughs> it's presented in so much media. Like, I was even watching the, um, the new Twilight Zone the other day, and the space station episode, like you think the one guy kills himself, but he really just ends up outside the matrix that he was living, you know, like it's, it's mind blowing. Is that, you know, is that its own form of afterlife? Maybe if that's where you want to go with that, but you know, the glitch in the matrix is just an existence of the other. And that is so wild to think about. Cause like when you really think about it, like, Let's look at the um, the much maligned film Cloverfield Paradox, 
they go up into the space station and they they do the um the hadron collider for for energy and uh it it literally when the energy collides um when the when the molecules collide um at light speed it literally transports them to a different reality <laughs> and the reality slowly starts to collapse on each of the characters in the movie i mean the the twist at the end is fucking awful but isn't it funny that I think about it? Like, as I'm reading this story, I'm, like, I'm imagining the little girl to, like, she, like, opens the door and, like, her house is normal and everything is the same, but she pulls back the curtain and there's a giant Cloverfield monster in her, in her, in the middle of her farm country. <laughs> you know? That's, that's the ending of Cloverfield Paradox for everyone who hasn't seen it. Um, protagonist launches escape pod coming back down to Earth. As she's coming down, she is warned by her husband from Dimension B that coming back to Earth is a terrible idea, that she shouldn't do that, and that she wished that he listened to her and stayed up in space. And as she comes crashing through the atmosphere, a unbelievably huge Cloverfield monster screams at the camera for no reason at all whatsoever, and then the movie ends. It is without a doubt one of like the worst fucking endings i've ever seen <laughs> and that's that's coming from someone who loves the original cloverfield movie and for what it's worth when you take cloverfield out of the title um 10 cloverfield lane is a very enjoyable movie um i'm fine with aliens i'm fine with some chick you know um you know, twist number one, much like the village, is that, oh no, the real monster is in the bunker with me. You know, the real monsters are the people in the village, right? But then, like, super twist number two is that, you know, there might not have been, like, an apocalypse that, that wiped out all of humanity, but there are absolutely aliens. <laughs> it's just a wild thing to think about. Um, the glitch in the Matrix, man. The glitch in reality, it makes you think of, um, what's it called? The, the Mandela effect a little bit. I love to talk about that too. Cause I could, I could swear it was Berenstein bears, not Berenstain, but I, I know I'm wrong on that. <laughs> I know I'm wrong cause my memory is fucking shot. I'm a drug addled brain. But uh, that was a that was a fun fucking story, and I hope everyone enjoyed it, and I hope everyone enjoyed this relaxed and very down to earth contained episode, because um, I need this sometimes, and I'm glad that people are willing to listen to it. Plus, the story was fucking banger, so um, I'm always happy to not be disappointed. <laughs> anyway. This was Lots of Pasta with your Capitan himself, Monsieur Death. And uh, this was episode 170. Yo, what the hell happened on my drive last night? You know, I got too fucking baked and I went for a munchies run. And I wanted to go to KFC, but as always, I ended up at Taco Bell. Glitch in the Matrix. Await till the days end when the moon is high. Little rise with the tide with the lust for life. I'll mess it up me.
across the land until we stand at the shore.